the next time someone tells you local politics is you know, <laughs> uninteresting or inconsequential, you can just point them to this case. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, the home of campaign tech innovation on the right. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, you're joining in on a conversation with entrepreneurs, operatives, and experts who make professional politics happen. Our guest today is Patrick Wool, author of the new book, Down Ballot, How a Local Campaign Became a National Referendum on Abortion. Patrick is a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs professional and also has extensive experience on the campaign trail up and down the ballot. In our conversation today, we discuss the small race that became a big deal, the long-term impact of that outcome, and we even dig into the book publishing industry. Patrick, let's start by setting the stage for the 1990 primary election this book is about. Who were the candidates and why was this state legislative race on the national radar back then? Well, this is a campaign not unlike the you know, thousands of races that happen across the country on the state legislative level where, you know, most people wouldn't know who these people are. But this story is illustrative uh, of those people and those races that don't get a lot of attention. And both women are longtime legislators in the northwest suburbs. Um, Penny Pollan, who was the, I would say, more conservative candidate in this race, and Rosemary Mulligan, who was the more moderate candidate in the race, um, were virtually unknown in, in the 1990s. In Illinois, uh, Penny Poland was was known as a longtime legislator. She was elected in, in 1976 at the age of 29. She was very conservative, like I said, very deeply religious, someone um, particularly motivated by social issues. Um, in the 80s, she was uh, one of the primary opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment in Illinois. And you'd find her face in advertisements and at rallies and things, um, opposing that alongside people like Phyllis Schlafly, uh, who called her one of her dearest friends and uh, Reverend Jerry Falwell. So sort of the uh, very, I would say, prototypical um, evangelical Republican we talk about today. And Rosemary Mulligan was on uh, the other end of the spectrum. And she was a more sort of, you know, Chamber of Commerce Republican, if you will, more socially moderate maybe socially liberal, who was driven to run against the incumbent uh, at that time, Penny Pollan, in, in 1990. And it was a race that was, at the beginning, not very remarkable. You had a candidate challenging someone who'd been in office for a long time. Um, but there was a Supreme Court decision that came down in, in 1989 called Webster v. Reproductive Health Services. And at the time, people thought that this was m- maybe one of the first opportunities that the the court would use to overturn Roe v. Wade. You had a changing bench with new appointments. You had a you know changing political landscape. And so there are a lot of parallels to that today. And while the court didn't do that, they came down with a decision that essentially allowed legislators in the states more leeway to regulate abortion. And so what happened is Penny Poland introduced a bill in the Illinois General Assembly. Rosemary Milligan just decided to challenge her. And this was the first campaign after the Supreme Court's decision because the Illinois primary is so early in March. And so mm. both sides were trying to prove a point. The pro-life side was backing Penny Pollan with lots of outside money being poured into this little legislative race. And the pro-choice side was bolstering Rosemary Mulligan, who sort of came out of nowhere in this. You had 
national groups like NARAL on the pro-choice side, groups like the National Right to Life and state-based groups on the other side, and lots of national figures who took interest in this race. You had Henry Hyde, who was uh, the congressman from Illinois, who's the right. namesake of the Hyde Amendment, whose district actually overlapped with this one, who got involved. And people like the owners of the Chicago Bears, the McCaskey family, and uh, even at one point in the book, um, Hillary Clinton, who was a high school classmate of of one of the women, so this really <laughs> became a really became a national story because of all sorts of twists and turns. But uh, like I said, they're sort of I would say representative these two women of two factions of both the Republican Party and just our politics at large that still obviously go at it today. All right, so who won? Well, Eric, that's a more complicated answer than, than it's not a it's not a uh, not a clear answer. No, and and not because I'm being cagey or anything like that, but because it was a roller coaster campaign. And on election night in the in the March primary, and again, this was a, a Republican primary in 1990. Uh, on election night, Rosemary Mulligan, the pro-choice candidate, uh, was ahead by 31 votes, and. At that time, they they thought they had had won. It was all over the national news the next day. Diane Sawyer was was talking about it as this big litmus test on the issue. But they discovered a a double count in one of the precincts, which is, you know, that's the sort of thing that does happen in elections. um, But usually it it either doesn't matter because it's just not very close or or it quickly gets resolved. But a recount ensued and uh, it was a seesaw back and forth for a couple of months. Both sides had to hire lawyers uh, to basically go in a warehouse and argue over which ballots they'd set aside and then <laughs> uh, bring before a judge. And it was all over the issue of dimpled chads. And in 1990, this is not a term that people knew about. This is pre-Bush v. Gore, which we can, <laughs> we can talk more about. It all centered on which which ballots to, to to count, and so they argued before a judge. It eventually uh, was was tied, and uh, in the event of a tie, uh, it's pretty simple. You know, the the recount process is complicated. There's lawyers involved. There's all sorts of legal maneuvering. There's lots of money spent. But in a recount, in the event of a tie, they flipped a coin, uh, and. <laughs> Rosemary Mulligan uh, called tails, uh, the pro-choice candidate. She won. And uh, it was an exciting moment again that, that you know, thrust them into the spotlight. Uh, ultimately, it was kind of a formality because it just, in a recount case, decides who's going to appeal generally. Uh, and eventually, in uh, September of 1990, the Illinois Supreme Court had ruled, uh, based on these various dimpled chads and, and uh, things like that, that Penny Poland had won by just uh, uh, seven votes. So uh, very much a seesaw uh, election because of that issues. And it was one of the first cases that really talked about that, that, that issue of dimple chads, like I mentioned. Yeah. So obviously just by name alone, most politicos won't be familiar with the Poland v. Mulligan case, but the moment you say the words dimpled chads, we get a hint about why we're still talking about this. And uh, it comes back to the 2000 Bush v. Gore recount. So uh, who dug this back up in 2000? It's obviously 10 years difference, different state. Um, how, how did this come to be a part of that Bush v. Gore decision? Well, both both sides were obviously at a, 
a very heated recon of their own in 2000. And so uh, both sides actually brought it up at some point to argue for, um, they both said it stood for one thing or the other. The, the Bush team said it said, stood for the notion that uh, Dimple Chad shouldn't be counted. And the Gore team in particular used it to, to say that uh, they should be counted. And this was, became a whole side story in Bush v. Gore because the Gore team found it in a Chicago Tribune article um, talking about this case. And the article said at the time that the Illinois Supreme Court said definitively, you always count dimple chads. That's what they did. And so they they brought that standard to Florida and said, hey, look, another uh, state had dealt with this. And while a state court ruling from another uh, from a non-Florida court couldn't, couldn't bind them, it, it just provides a persuasive reason for for why they should. And the problem was that uh, the article actually misrepresented what the holding was. Uh, the, court, <laughs> the court in Illinois did not say that uh, they should be counted in all cases. It just said to the extent you can determine uh, voters intent, then you can count it, which is very, very different. And so this became a sideshow because um, the, uh, the Bush lawyers eventually filed a complaint against uh, David Boys, who was the the lead uh, Gore attorney. A lot of people know him because he was um, very prominent in the Microsoft antitrust suits. He was uh, Elizabeth Holmes' lawyer for Theranos recently. <laughs> so he's a very well-known litigator. Uh, but they tried to file complaints against him saying, you know, he was misrepresenting this case. Um, but the problem was it, it actually did result in, in uh, using the Poland case and other state cases uh, did result in uh, votes being counted in some counties for uh, Gore based on that standard. And so that became important uh, later on because when this eventually reached the Supreme Court and they were arguing over this issue, um, we all know what happened in the end. The court ruled in favor of, of then Texas Governor Bush and the reason they gave for uh, for ruling in his favor, for saying there was an equal protection violation and stopping the count was because there were all of these uneven standards in counties across the state. Some were counting dimples, some were not. And it was because confusion over cases like this. So that, the next time someone tells you local politics is you know, <laughs> uninteresting or inconsequential, you can just point them to this case. Well, it's a fascinating uh, story. Lots of ups and downs. So, what 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 became of Penny Pullen and Rosemary Mulligan? What did they think of their recount battle uh, shaping the outcome of that two thousand presidential election? Well, it's 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 interesting because the lawyers who worked on these cases, um, the Pullen lawyer who worked for the more conservative candidate, ended up working for the Gore team during this, helping with the. <laughs> helping with the recount. And then the uh, Mulligan lawyer who represented the more moderate or liberal candidate worked for the Bush team. So it, it sort of goes to show you. I think this says a lot about lawyers. Yes. I'm not going to say what I think it says about them, but uh, that's an interesting point of trivia. Well, as if, as someone who will, who will, uh, after I take the bar in a couple of months, be a lawyer, I'll, I'll defend the profession (laughs) for a second here. I think it's, Interesting because there's so many issues in um, in law that are even split um, ideologically. You know, constitutional law. You have an argument over um, the living constitution or originalism, or in 
um, you know, a, a suit over um, workers' comp, how much money you should give is, you know, split inside. But this is really just sort of you, you argue what you argue at the time based on what's happened and, and what favors you. So it really, the, the recount issue is no, no political home, which I, I think is a, a <laughs> unique, unique piece. But uh, as for, as for what happened with, with both of these women, um, again, this goes to them sort of representing different ends of the political spectrum in our country. Ro- Rosemary Mulligan, um, eventually won, uh, a, a rematch in 1992 and then became a, a longtime legislator in the Northwest suburbs, um, Republican legislator. And, um, she was a very strong advocate, um, you know, on, on the budget in, in Illinois and on healthcare and, uh, became someone who definitely bucked the party on a lot of social issues. She, you know, cast one of the tie breaking votes for civil unions, for same sex couples, um, and obviously was a very passionate pro-choice advocate. So that, that those were um, some of her causes, but was also someone who was in the news. Sometimes she, she, uh, uh, you know, was well known for calling uh, Rob Ogoyevich, uh on a hot mic, uh, a blithering idiot, which the <laughs> Chicago press enjoyed. Um, and on the other end, Poland, um, uh, Rosemary Mulligan has since passed away, but Penny Poland is, is still around. She's still active. She actually, recently moved to, to Michigan. Um, she ran the Illinois Family Institute, which is a, a um, socially conservative uh, advocacy group in the state. And she runs a, a pro-life nonprofit now. She's, on all, she's been on all sorts of boards, um, you know, the Council on National Policy. She was one of the founding members, actually, uh, in the early days of the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, mm-hmm. uh, and s- sat on all sorts of boards with, with people like Jenny Thomas and Phyllis Schlafly and Tom Fitton and Morton Blackwell, who founded the Leadership Institute. So very interesting just because I think she sort of represents the activist or legislator who works a lot behind the scenes, um, but doesn't necessarily get or seek out uh, the credit for a lot of the, the work she does behind the scenes. Yeah. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Patrick Wool, author of Down Ballot, How a Local Campaign Became a National Referendum on Abortion. Patrick, I want to shift gears now because writing a book isn't the usual career path for someone in our industry. What motivated you to become an author? Well, I had always known about this story. And really what motivated me to to become an author was that nobody had written about this story before. And I thought it was so interesting as a, as a cam, campaign junkie. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in on campaigns on the, the, the state, the local level, um, you know, governor's races, presidential campaign. And there are all sorts of books and, and movies and podcasts and things about presidential races or high profile campaigns for governor. But I love local politics and there really is a gap in political books. There's no, very few, if, if, if not no political um, books about you know, local campaigns that tell a story, not an analysis, but a narrative story that mm-hmm. kind of shows people what it's like to work on a political campaign. And so I got to blend that, my my political experience, and try to bring people behind the scenes of what it's like to work from, you know, ballot access and candidate call time and election night war rooms and how a recount works. And sort of put my experience through um, of, of working in politics in the book in that sense, 
and, and melding it with all the interviews I did um, with the people who worked on these campaigns. So, you know, ultimately, this is it's not a political book. Obviously, it talks mm-hmm. about politics, but it tells the, the story based on all the research I did and interviews with people. So that was uh, an interesting part of this is just uh, trying to tell the story without necessarily expressing political views or anything. Like yeah, that. It's, it's a great story. And it really feels like um, a visit to a foreign country. You know, the way campaigns were run in the 1990s, the fact that you had a pro-choice Republican um, being competitive and, and you have Republicans representing the suburbs of Chicago. I mean, it is a it's kind of a, a foreign country to us now. So it's a great story. I'm glad you brought it to, to life. What are the, the new skills that you had to learn or hone to, to see this project through? That's a great question. Uh, and I, I think I would point to sort of what I just mentioned too, is turning off your political hat in a way. You know, I, I certainly have my own views on all, you know, all sorts of issues. Um, and I worked in politics before, but uh, really trying to be objective and just not deliver opinions or anything like that or express viewpoints, but just tell the story of what happened. And so I think uh, that was one skill I had to develop. And then I would say also um, getting people to talk to you was an interesting experience because people either thought I was, when I called them to talk, um, they either thought I was too... um, too liberal or too conservative or, you know, everyone thought no matter what their politics were that I was going to write something bad, horrible about them. So you really have to smooth people over and, and convince them to talk to you and, and convince Even them after that, all those years. Yes. Yes. Oh, passions were, were certainly high, but I will say too, passions were high, but also a lot of the people I talked to are now in their eighties and nineties who worked on the campaign. So, um, they also, memories weren't what they used to be. That well, sometimes, but I was surprised by some people. Like I spoke to the judge who who worked in this case, and people were wildly blunt uh, with their assessments of people, <laughs> which made it a lot of fun because uh, you know they didn't care; they just said how they really thought them. So people weren't holding back, which I appreciated. That's funny. It's kind of uh, like you're their confessor exactly. after all these years. Let it get off their chest. Um, give us a rundown of how that the, the book publishing industry works. It's, it's a fascinating business. It's obviously going through a lot of changes um, because of technology and self-publishing and things like that. Just give us the kind of overview because we've got people who like to, to learn about business here on, on the show. Um, take us behind the scenes, like, you know, the, the process. Well, it, it certainly is changing a lot. And there are, there's obviously two routes. There's self-publishing, which has become a wider and realistic and available, you know, avenue for a lot of people, certainly, especially with Amazon and um, all sorts of companies that make it uh, much more easy now. Um, and there, but there certainly are, uh, there's the other route, um, which is just traditional publishing. Um, that's, that's what I set out to do. And, it can be just kind of difficult going through all the whole process. It's a lot of waiting. Um, and it's very, uh, especially for a first time author, um, a, a lot of waiting, you know, you have, you have to write a proposal, pitch agents, get an agent and then have them pitch publishers, which can, can be a whole process. And, you know, Washington DC in particular is very interesting because there are a lot of books and, and state capitals across the country too. There's, there's stories about politics throughout the country. 
you know, you saw in the, in the Trump administration a lot of um, <laughs> staffer books, you know, which sold really well. The the, the Trump administration was great for <laughs> for publishing stimulus, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, you see lots of uh, politicians who write books, obviously memoirs, um, and those those are those are tend to be different, um, you know. When you're one of those folks, generally you're probably hiring a ghostwriter. You're not doing it yourself. And so you'll put together a proposal with some sample chapters, maybe some blurbs, um, get your agent and then shop it around to, to different publishing houses. And so you don't actually have to write a, a full book, um, which is, which is, was an interesting revelation for me. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not, a am not a, you know, famous name or anything like that. You did that. your own stunts on this. Yes, one. exactly. No stunt doubles. So, uh, yeah, I had to, I had to write the book. So I wrote it first because this is a nonfiction book. That's almost, it's written more like a fiction book. It's a, it's a narrative. And so, um, yeah, I had to, had to write that pitch, pitch agents probably pitched, you know, a hundred <laughs> people before I actually had some, some options, but um, but you've done voter contact, so you were not deterred. Or I, discouraged. You know, it's funny you say that. That honestly is being told no is such a valuable lesson in in <laughs> that you can take away from politics because you will be told no so many times in writing a book. And and I'm uh, yes, so that that's a certainly a valuable lesson. Um, but what, DC is really interesting because a lot of the um, my agent is, is in New York and she's, she's wonderful. Um, there are, there are some really killer agencies in DC too, that do really interesting, great work and do a lot of the big books you, that you see, uh, on bookshelves, you know, uh, Bob Barnett at Williams and Connolly is kind of the, he's like the go-to political book guy has done everyone from George Bush to Hillary Clinton to Sarah Palin and Liz Cheney. I mean, he does like <laughs> every, every big book. Um, and there's uh, Ross Yoon, which is another huge, uh, big agency in, in DC does a lot of political books, a lot of politicians. Um, and they were actually recently acquired by WME, the, um, big uh, Hollywood agency. One last one. Uh, there's a, another big DC one that they do a lot of huge political books is Javelin, which is actually two former um, Bush staffers and they do a lot of um, creative, creative work. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting ecosystem in DC because it's most of, most things are in New York, but there's certainly a, a fierce competition in, in Washington and, and, and uh, um, for, for a lot of those, you know, political books you see in the news. Yeah, it's uh it's an interesting business that still has a lot of gatekeepers, right? And and you've got to know the 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 right people and obviously the the shelves on bookstores are limited resources. So, uh it's a fascinating uh look behind the curtain there. So, to wrap up, Patrick, what can we learn today from the perspective that you gained by looking back at a a local election that took place 34 years ago? Well, there's, there's a lot of lessons to, to take away from this campaign. I think one of the most interesting ones, uh, most interesting revelations for me was just how much recounts have changed mm. uh, and the technology that we vote on has changed. You know, we don't use punch card ballots anymore. That was phased out a couple of years after Obush v. Gore took a little while, but the last two counties to use, you know, these punch card ballots, which were confusing for people and cause all sorts of issues, 
was in 2014. So that's, that's been oh, cut wow. down. That's been cut down on. And, um, so that's the way, the way we vote has, has changed a lot. Certainly uh, it's still paper, the VAT and some, something like 95% of voters vote on some sort of paper, whether it's them marking it themselves or, or through a machine, but no more punch cards. Um, but I think there's a lot too, to, to be said about, you know, for a lot of your listeners, just how much um, more they can influence local campaigns because there's so much less uh, attention being paid on local races on, you know, county board or, or alderman, city council, state rep. Uh, and I think that's kind of an opportunity for a lot of political professionals because paid media is, is it's just only becoming more important than ever, you know, Facebook, Instagram, OTT, direct mail, like there's no, there are no other sources for <laughs> people to get their information on local politics. So, you know, you're the ones to fill, to fill the gap, which should, can, is a huge opportunity for people working on campaigns. Um, and then I, I would say the, the last thing is just sort of a tried and true lesson uh, about involvement in local politics. I think uh, people ought to be more involved. Um, you know, 80% of Americans can't name a, st- a single state legislator of theirs. Uh, one in three, one in three Americans can't even name their own governor. And uh, so I, I think the, the biggest lesson in, in this is that, you know, most issues today that we're talking about uh, are decided in state capitals, not in Washington. And on, on every issue that Americans care, care about, there's, there's a penny polling and there's a rosemary mulligan. And they're watching closely, uh, but the, the question is, who's watching them? Well, my thanks to Patrick Wool for a great conversation. Check out the link to his book in our show notes. Definitely give it a, a read for a fascinating look in, in a very, until now, not well-known piece of, of American campaign history. If this episode made you a little bit smarter or gave you something to think about, all we ask is that you share it with a friend or colleague you look smarter in the process people find out about the show it's a win-win all around remember to subscribe to the business of politics show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode you can also sign up for updates on our website at businessofpoliticspodcast.com with that i'll say thanks for listening see you next time The Business of Politics show is produced by Advocacy Content Kitchen, a media production studio.